Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Carrie murdered a child. The evidence and the counter evidence. I'm struggling with that. When the facts are filled with coincidences, don't dismiss those coincidences. I have no tolerance for the unexplainable. Well then, sir, you'll have no tolerance for me. Hello and welcome to the first still watching podcast of 2020. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. That's right. Richard's back. Yay. We're back together again. Uh, thanks so much to Anthony for stepping in on The Mandalorian. Uh, but it's nice to also have you back uh, to talk some prestige TV with me, Richard. Which show have we decided to start out with on a cheery note? uh in in 2020 well yeah we just wanted something light because you know the real world is pretty dark so we chose um the outsider an hbo miniseries based on a stephen king novel about child murder yay happy new year (laughs) yeah whoops Uh, oh well. Uh, yeah. So we're here back on our HBO Sunday night, uh, beat, uh, to bring you this, uh, mini series starring Ben Mendelsohn, Cynthia Erivo, uh, briefly Jason Bateman, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we are in this episode of the podcast, we will be covering the first two episodes, which aired, uh, this Sunday night back to back. So if you can watch both episodes. You're going to watch both of them. You're going to want to watch both of them before you listen to us. Uh, talk about them because we'll be spoiling everything that happens in those first two episodes. But something we've decided, you know, even though this miniseries is based on a Stephen King book that anyone listening to this can go out and read for themselves, we will not be doing a spoiler section or a book reader section or anything like that. We're just sticking to the show, sticking to these two hours to start out with. And uh, there will be no book discussion uh, or at least like, Future book discussion. If the show decides to diverge wildly from the book and we feel like that's worth talking about at some point, we could talk about that. But other than that, this is a show only podcast. Um, 
We love it when you guys email us because you notice a lot of things that we miss. You have a lot of great insights. Um, so if you want to email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. That is where you can still find us. Uh, we love to hear from you. Um, but let us start before we sort of get into the meat of what happened in these two hours. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you, Richard, this was sort of you wanted to do this show or, or, no, it was a joint decision, but like you had watched it before I had. So what was it about this show, um, at least in these first two hours that you responded to that you felt like was worth uh, chatting about week to week? Well, I think it's really interesting um, to bring two great genre writers together in the forms of Stephen King, who wrote the novel, and Richard Price, uh, who wrote a lot of the initial episodes of the show and is known as like the crime guy. He did The Night Of. He did, he wrote for The Wire, I believe. Um, he's written some great crime novels like Clockers and the screenplay for the Spike Lee movie based on the novel. Um, a really, really beautiful book about um, uh, kind of mid-aughts uh, Manhattan called Lush Life that everyone should read if they haven't. It's a, it's a mystery, but it's also just like beautiful kind of anthropology of an era. Um, and yeah, so I thought that might be, that, that would be an interesting thing in combining King's sense of really you know oppressive dread and horror um with a more a, a guy who does really like interesting textured lived in procedural stuff and blending those two two formats together i think um hopefully will make for uh something interesting to talk about yeah and i think barring like i don't know 15 minutes of these first two uh episodes or even less I think there's some like creepy shots uh, that we can talk about, but like uh, you could almost think that this was uh, the second season of night of, or something like that. Like this feels very Richard price um, right off, right off the bat, you know, down to the fact that we have, um, you know, a suspect taken into custody and it seems like all signs are pointing to the fact that like he didn't do it. So um, it's a very night of premise, but yeah, to put it through the lens of Stephen King, um, I think that's going to be interesting for me as well. Um, what is your, what is your history with Stephen King? Like what, what is your relationship I don't know that I've ever talked to you about Stephen King. What's your relationship with Stephen King, Richard? Oh, we don't know each other that well. Um, just, no. just at parties, you know. Um, okay. No, <laughs> no um, you know what? This is kind of embarrassing to say. I've never read a Stephen King novel. Um, I think when I was younger, my sister kind of was like tearing through them one summer and I got, to, I was too scared. Like I was like, I don't want to do that. But I have seen a lot of the stuff, you know, um, that has been based on his books from, you know, the kind of cheesy, 90s miniseries like um the stand or night storm of the century which i think he might have actually just written for tv um you know from the pet cemetery from you know the early 90s and the shining from the 80s like um you know i've seen a lot of his stuff and i appreciate sort of where he's coming from uh although the fact that he doesn't like kubrick's shining and did like the cheesy Steven Weber miniseries that came many years later um, gives me a little bit of pause sometimes about like his sort of taste level maybe um, but I don't know I know people are really diehard fans of his are, are you? I'm a like I feel hit and miss on King um, and something that King does really well is uh, explore certain turn certain very adult themes into genre horror without losing the like mm -hmm. seriousness and depth of that. A lot of that has to do with like, um, 
child abuse or, or abuse of children and then also uh trauma that we carry with us and then also uh sort of rot at the center of small towns and institutions and i think you see a lot of that in this series in these first two episodes um so that's something that i'm i'll be interested for us to talk about uh i'm usually more of a fan of his short fiction uh so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of stephen king short fiction but yeah no i'm i'm i would consider myself a king fan the thing that i don't like that sometimes happens in king books is i think he's so good at you know, giving us, like, say with The Shining, giving us something like, I don't know, writer's block or toxic masculinity or whatever you want to say it is, and making that into like a horrifying supernatural uh, thing to explore. But then when, when those themes become a little too literalized in the end, like, I don't know, um, some of the stuff that happens in it, when, when the confrontations mm-hmm. become too literalized, literally monsters, that's where he loses me sometimes. So, um, we will, we will see how this all turns out. A, a big draw for me on this, on this particular show is not just the Richard Price of it all, which you, you mentioned is a, is a really big draw, but also like this crazy great cast. Um, you and I are big Ben Mendelsohn fans. Um, we're big Cynthia mm-hmm. Revo fans, even though Cynthia Revo has yet to arrive. Oh, in the show. Um, she's coming. Uh, Jason Bateman. <laughs> I, I heard what you just said. Uh, I was hoping maybe you hadn't. Um, anyway, uh, Jason Bateman is not only, uh, in these first two episodes, but he directed Emmy winning director. Jason Bateman directed, uh, these first two episodes. I know you're the world's biggest Ozark head. So, uh, you know, there's that Bill mm-hmm. Camp, uh, who a lot of people know from Night of, but also his stage work, big fan. Patty Considine, who I love, who's an Irish actor who's doing this like very large performance in the first episode. Uh, Julian Nicholson, who I'm a big fan of, who's playing Jason Bateman's wife. So it's just like, it's a great stacked cast, uh, as you might expect from, uh, a Sunday night HBO show. Uh, so I'm excited for us to, to follow them. I like that it's a, um, it's a it's a packed cast, but it doesn't feel like a stunt cast, you know. Like it feels like people are really considered for you know, you know, like Yul Vasquez is not a huge name, but he's a great actor and he fits into the series really well. Mayor Winningham, you know, similarly, um, uh, it's just it 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 has that kind of Pricean lived in texture, and these actors are really good at um, at doing that. So it feels really credible and and like a, a you know gloomier version of the real world which is what kind of makes it i think so much scarier when in episode two we start to sense that maybe something not necessarily of the tangible world is is kind of right, going on. absolutely um so let's uh let's maybe like zoom through like the, the what's interesting to me is uh when i thought it was just this first episode that was airing on sunday i was a little uh, i was a little curious as to why because i was like it felt like they both zoomed through a lot of stuff in the first episode you know like uh not only is our uh suspect like apprehended and imprisoned um but we already have Oh, like a whole raft of evidence that like he couldn't have done it, uh, as well. Um, and so why are we already here at the end of the first episode? Um, and I guess I was thinking like, well, um, maybe they needed you to already know that this was like a King-esque 
kind of story, but they don't really get, you know, you get like one shot, I believe in the first episode of like, uh, a creepy looking hooded man, like sort of staring into the camera, uh, question mark. Um, but you don't really get into the like, maybe there is something unexplainable going on until episode two, uh, when you have, which is titled Roanoke, when you have certain discussions of, of the supernatural come into it. Um, so I don't know, like, as a, as a pilot of a, of a miniseries, as like, uh, an episode supposed to pique our interest, but, but keep us oriented in the world. What do you make of this first hour and its pace and what it, what it wants to, uh, accomplish there? Well, I mean, I think it, it is hard because, uh, you know, as we learn in episode two, like, Terry Maitland, the character played by Bateman, is really just the catalyst for the story and not who the story is about. But that first episode kind of makes you see, make, makes it seem like it's, you know, Bill Camp and Riz Ahmed in night of, you know, trying to like right. get to the bottom of things, you know. Um, and then I think that the second episode of this show upends that much like, you know, killing Ned Stark in episode nine of the first season of Game of Thrones. Like this obviously happens much earlier. We don't really know who Terry is. Um, which I think is kind of an interesting choice. I, I sort of almost think that they either needed, I mean, in a perfect world, Terry would have died at the end of the first episode as the real kind of like hooky thing, like, oh, they just killed Jason Bateman. Or yeah. he's around for many more episodes. Killing him off in the second episode almost means you kind of have to show both on the premiere night because I don't know that that first hour alone, while intriguing and well shot and well acted, um, it, you know, it, it could seem like just another murder mystery because I don't think that hooded figure shows up until episode two. Maybe I missed him in the first episode, but, um, he's in the first episode. Oh, he is. Okay. I, I know for certain because like I, I, only watched that hour, uh, and I had him in my notes. So oh, okay. It's, I it's it kind then. of, br- it's kind of brief. He's kind of brief, but, um, it's much more of a thing in the second episode yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's an interesting strategy. I mean, you know, like HBO obviously is never, is not anytime soon going to abandon, at least on their main platform, the, you know, you know, once a week kind of format, but like, I understand giving this, this, this series, which doesn't have that high a profile, you know, even though it's a, a, you know, Stephen King show. Um, and they normally like to start January with something big. And this is, this could be big if people get into it, but I think you needed that second hour to really sell it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I like, I really like Bateman in this. And I like Bateman for this character too, because I think we talked about this, uh, when you and I did an episode about Ozark, um, is that like, um, Bateman is a character as a, as a performer is someone I always like to watch, but also someone I always inherently distrust for some reason. Um, it, you know, it doesn't matter who he's playing. I'm always like a little, uh, looking askance at that character. There's some quality to him. And so I think that's kind of perfect for this role where you're meant to be unsure, um, as to, as to his guilt and innocence. Um, and he's got this moment at the beginning of episode two where he's talking about, um, Ralph's kid, uh, who passed away, who died from cancer, uh, who he coached in, in Little League. And he's got this just like this long, monologue about this kid and Bateman is so good in that. And I had already like spoiled myself and read that his character gets shot really early on. And so I was like, I don't want him to go. Mm-hmm. Like I want him to stay around. So um that's a powerful card to play to have someone as engaging as Jason Bateman um, second builds or, 
you know, build high up, not second build, Cynthia Revo's second build, but like build high up on a show and then to like, yeah, Ned Stark in, uh, in episode two. So, uh, now, now it's just Ben and, and Cynthia who is yet to arrive. So, uh, we'll, we'll see where we go from there. Uh, what do you make of these, uh, of the introduction of various characters? So we get like, let's talk, so let's start with the Anderson family. We get Ralph Anderson played by Ben Mendelsohn and his wife, Jeannie, and they've lost their son. And there are ways in which I think that is well done. And then there's like just one scene where the two of them are discussing their son and it's just a little too confused motivations. He's like, you know, I never know how much the death of my, of our son basically is influencing the way in which I pursue criminals. But I like that theme because it's like when he goes and he arrests, uh, Terry at the baseball game, it's, it's personal. It's not, he's not being professional in that moment. He's letting his personal anger about the death of his own son and the fact that this is an adult figure who was in charge of his son at one point, uh, cloud his behavior. So like this, 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 uh, this presentation of the Anderson family, this presentation of this kind of investigator, like how did that land for you, Richard? I mean, I, I, I know what you mean that like sometimes the, it was a little bit like, um, they were telling and not showing, you know, like the right. scene that we're in there, they're in the cemetery and Mendelssohn just kind of says, I miss, I miss him so much. And it's like, I don't know, would people say that? But like, I think that the, the, um, the other kind of read of it is that, you know, this, this, he's investigating the death of a child. He lost a child. Something new has been stoked in him. Presumably he's not done a lot of child murder cases. I mean, you know, they haven't given us any backstory to that effect, but like, I don't think in the, in the course of many detectives lives, they, they deal with that kind of thing more than once, you know, um, if at all. Um, and, uh, so I, so it makes a little more sense if you kind of think of it through that lens as like, he's speaking more directly because these are like new feelings, you know, and new realizations about like, have I been like kind of, you know, acting out my kind of rage and despair over my son's death through my work, you know? And I think that obviously he makes this huge, um, tactical error in, uh, arresting Terry in front of, you know, basically this whole town or suburb or whatever it is, um, this whole neighborhood, um, you know, because he's angry and he doesn't think about how that will affect things. And in, in essence, he, that, that action is what gets Terry killed. Not, not that the, 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 the brother of the murdered boy wouldn't necessarily find out that, um, Terry was the suspect, but he certainly, like, the, the certainly, it wouldn't be as public as it was. There wouldn't be all the chaos of the, of, of walking him into court, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, I think that, like, I think the interesting thing about this show thus far is that, like, Actions have consequences and things get remembered. And I, I, I like this kind of idea that maybe, you know, that I think sprung from King that like, you know, a, a, a cop acting a bit ragged, you know, sort of with a bit of bravado, which is maybe rare for him, um, has long tethers that maybe kind of are hurtling us through this whole season. Right. That, you know, there might be something supernatural at play, but the super, in King, I think the super, the supernatural always reflects, uh, a flaw, a systemic flaw or a personal flaw that's already there. You know what I mean? And so that this is a, um, you know, 
a night of a miscarriage of justice, uh, you know, that might have a supernatural explanation. But what's interesting is like the way in which this is set up, there is, it's not like Mendelssohn's character, Detective Ralph Anderson is acting wildly recklessly. You know what I mean? Like Mm -mm. there is Mm -hmm. just a a mountain of evidence that we see stack up, um, against Terry. Um, and so, you know, it puts us in a, in a more uncomfortable gray area because it's not like he's a bad cop behaving badly. Um, uh, you know, and, and that's driven home by the fact that at one point it sort of implied that he should lose some evidence that weakens their case. Uh, just to make sure that they can make their case and he refuses to. And so this is not like, this is not yeah. a bad guy, but the fact that the cracks in the system are more subtle, um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and less of a, of a big mustache twirling villain, uh, sort of thing. Um, I think that makes for a more interesting television. Yeah. And I think it's really smart how, um, how quickly we get to the arrest and you're like, wow, that was rash. And then they keep cutting back to another scene of Ralph interviewing an eyewitness. Right. And then they cut, you know, to the arrest, back to the arrest. And, and it keeps mounting. And you're like, by the end of that sequence, you're like, Oh, so like they've got him dead to rights. I mean, like, you know, cause you start more on Bateman's side and then by the end, you're like, but wait, look, there's like all of that very, very strong evidence, you know? Right. And I just like the way that that information is meted out in the show because it really, you know, kind of tests your, um, or, or you know your loyalties or whatever you know it's an interesting kind of um view on on the sort of duality of the of the story as it is thus far i, I want to get uh, i want to hop over to the to the maitland family uh we spend more time with as well but before we do i want to um want to ask you what you think of the level of or lack thereof so far of gore in this this is something that i kind of appreciate about this because like right around this time last year you and i were doing true detective and so there are things about this you know this sort of grim gothic murder mystery sort of thing that that you know will make me inevitably think of true detective but um the way in which true detective um sort of reveled in his grisliness sometimes um, it's something that at least thus far the show is kind of avoided. You get this. Go ahead. Yeah. Whole, uh, they, they do, they do show the body quickly, you know, yeah. and they show his face and then the bat, his back a little bit. And then that's it. And that's it. You know, and, and yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I think that a lot of times on shows like, you know, that are on, you know, cable where they can show stuff, they kind of do revel in that, even if it's like a kid. And I, yeah. I, I like, I admire the show's restraint in, and then we, and we don't see it ever again. You right. know, they're, they're, I have, they're, they're not like, you know, throwing the crime scene photos at anybody and, you know, for an, an extra little bit of gore. It, it's, it's quick. We get the impact of it and then we process that and then don't have to see it again. Right. Which, you know, there might be more coming. This is, but I think it, that level of restraint, um, might surprise people who like maybe they think I'm not, I don't have the stomach for a Stephen King show you know what i mean and i I, like i don't Mm -hmm. know if it sounds weird for me to be praising the show about child murder uh for its restraint but you know it's like it's it could be a lot more gruesome than it is and um i appreciate that uh okay so let's talk about the maitlands we meet terry and uh his wife glory played by julian nichols the great julian nicholson and Mm -hmm. uh two daughters and um over the course of the two hours uh we get them not only as like 
this family that, you know, they lose their father, et cetera, thing. Stephen King is always interested in like children and their sensitivities to supernatural things. And so there seems to be something going on with one of the daughters in terms of like her dreams and, and, um, maybe a, a visitation of some kind. Um, so what do you, what do you make of the, of the mail? Yeah. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Yeah, I mean, there's a man talking to her, which she says at night and saying dark things and telling her things about her father. And, you know, that's always, that, that that's both a cre- creepy device and also mm-hmm. maybe a slightly overused one. Um, but, you know, when it's used well, like, I think it's used well here. And I'm, I was, I also, it made me think of the, um, my current sort of, favorite new network show of the year or only yeah. favorite network show of the year is evil from mm-hmm. the, from uh, Robert Michelle King. Um, that's like, it's interesting because it's kind of similar where it's like, it's them applying their sort of legal procedural wit to a scary show. Um, kind of like Richard Price is here in a way. Um, and, uh, and, and that show evil in, in, involves partly um, the lead characters, daughters are frequently sort of seemingly to commune with various you know, demonic energy or whatever. Um, and, and the, the fear of that, that the scary part of that as, you know, an adult is that like, you sometimes just don't, you can't control every mm-hmm. sort of thing that reaches your child, you know? Uh, and, um, and the helplessness of that, I think, um, is well, is well, um, uh, well communicated in this, in these two episodes. Um, I especially like the scene where, you know, Glory is obviously distraught. She's angry at the police. She's concerned for her children. She's grieving. You know, it's a lot, a lot of things for Julianne Nicholson to carry. Um, and, and then her daughter is the one who remembers all of these details about this trip to Dayton, um, that proves, you know, that could prove really, you know, useful information about him having a cut and there being the barbecue restaurant and all that. And I think that like, um, it's another sort of example of like, you don't always know what your kids are absorbing, what they're noticing, what they're taking in. Um, and I think those are all very much, you know, kind of primal Stephen King themes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, aside from the two, these two sort of main families that we meet, um, are there any, uh, of the side characters that stood out to you as particularly like worth, uh, discussing? 
Well, I love Bill Camp as the, the kind of family lawyer who's, um, you know, gruff, competent on their side firmly. Um, I think he's great. I hope he sticks around. Uh, Yul Vasquez, who plays the, the, um, the lieutenant from, I think, the state police, right. um, who's kind of assisting with the investigation or leading. I don't know, but like, I think, you know, he's always good. Um, I am kind of, at the moment, the whole stuff with Patty Considine in the bar seems a bit, atomized from everything else you know like, like a, a bit separate yeah i'm like how are they gonna bring him back i really hope we get more of him but i'm like but what will be the excuse uh so you know we'll see yeah and i'm also interested like you know the second episode essentially opens or almost does with this kind of beautiful shot of a man trudging through the wilderness and then shooting a pig and we're like who is this guy again and then we realize that he's part of the police force and is brought back and maybe has some anger issues um so it'll be interesting to see uh, I don't know that actor's name, forgive me, but um, it'll be interesting to see how he kind of factors into things. Um, you know, it, it seems like we are kind of amassing a pretty big cast of characters. Maybe that will shrink in later episodes, but I know we all, we haven't even met one of the big ones played by uh, <laughs> Cynthia Arrivo. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I like, but, you know, if this becomes a sort of like team banding together to like, you know, fight something bad, I mean, th- that's very, very it, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Mark Menchaca, uh, is the name of the guy who plays the character you mentioned who's on the hunting trip, Jack Hoskins. Um, I loved that introduction for some reason. I was like immediately like, who is this? I want to know more. Um, and I guess that actor is on Ozark, though I don't remember him, uh, from Ozark, but he really, he really caught my attention. And this is an archetype that, uh, Stephen King loves to play with, which is someone in authority with anger issues. And so I, you know, this, this is exactly the kind of character that Stephen King loves just like having you watch them explode. Uh, so that is, that is like a ticking time bomb that I, you know, we should definitely all have our eye on. Um, but speaking of that introduction, you know, we see him on this hunting trip, this beautiful overhead shot of, um, you know, the, the, countryside or whatever um what do you what do you think of of bateman's direction in these two episodes i will start and say uh you know a famed critique of ozark is that it is too physically dark uh for people to see sometimes and there are times during these two episodes when i like especially there's a scene in the daughter's bedroom where we're supposed to like be registering like some sort of uh wetness on the floor and I had to like rewind mm-hmm. multiple times and make sure all my blinds are closed to be able to s- make sure that I was seeing, noticing everything we were supposed to be noticing. So there were like some moments that felt like too physically dark for me on this episode. That being said, yeah. I do think it was like that, that quibble aside, I do think it was well done. Like, do you feel like you get a sense of who Bateman's style, um, as a director from these episodes compared to his other work. Yeah. I mean, I think he, he's, I think he's a, he's a good director. You know, he, um, he made a movie called the family Fang, um, a number of years ago with Nicole Kidman. And he, I think he started it as well. And I think Christopher Walken, maybe, um, that's based on a novel. That's actually a, kind of an interesting little, it's a quirky family indie. Yes. But like it, there's something else going on there. And obviously he's done well with Ozark because, which, which is a, a kind of, you know, breaking bad esque, you know, kind of lots of plots, points clicking together kind of show and that's stylish. But this, I think he had more, um, there was maybe a bit more, uh, room for, for kind of 
artfulness for atmosphere for for kind of slow build mood and i think he kind of really seizes on that you know i think in conjunction with the score which is really you know portentous and 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 kind of looming um and and the visuals of the show something i like about the the aesthetic is um, even in the daytime, how you can just kind of feel the, this like clenching darkness, you know, and I don't mean like the literal darkness where you can't see, you know, key plot <laughs> right, details, right. but just the sort of more, you know, um, abstract darkness, um, in nighttime scenes, you know, everyone seems to be kind of huddled in these little pools of light, you know, surrounded by this vast blackness. And I think that that's, you know, a sort of neat, um, visual motif, uh, for a show that does seem to be about, uh, malevolent forces, you know, kind of, stalking people um so yeah you know good on bateman he's he's you know he's getting the uh, insurance in for when he doesn't want to act he can just make that leap full time <laughs> we should note that um you know so richard price wrote these uh like first five episodes bateman directed the first two um but karen kasama uh is going to be directing episode six karen kasama is like a great talent uh who i'm a big fan of you know she most recently directed a destroyer the film starring nicole kidman but uh she's she's a very great moody director and then uh on the writing front, Dennis Lehane, uh, you know, who wrote like Gone Baby Gone, among other things, uh, Mystic River, uh, wrote on a couple later episodes. So that's like an interesting vibe that we can look forward to, uh, later on in the season. Um, you know, that, that I think makes, I mean, like, I'm, I'm completely fascinated what they will have eight more episodes to do. You know what I mean? Like you've seen more than I have, but I'm just sort of like, how are we already here? I mean, yes, Cynthia Revo's not here yet, but like, how are we already here? And we've got eight more episodes to go. I'm utterly like, you know, at a loss and, and fascinated to see, uh, what we could possibly fill eight more episodes with. But like Ben Mendelsohn is someone that I would, you know, just watch, um, you know, re- you know, I wouldn't even have listened to him read the phone book. He could, he could read the phone book silently and I would watch his face do it. So, you know, it's like, um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm in for it. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, what I like about, about the, I mean, in, in, you know, sort of in more hindsight, like the, the, the rushedness of the pilot episode is like, it does in a sense give you, you know, it, 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 it gives you the impression like, oh, this story could be headed somewhere totally big and, um, you know, unexpected and you know if we have eight more episodes left and the murder you know like the murder isn't by no means solved but like you know we've we've cleared a suspect essentially you know like i like um i think it promises something kind of you know epic in a way um and i hope that the show uh, lives up to that absolutely yeah so we get i mean we get this some hints of what could be happening right we've got a hooded figure we've got some Someone mysterious whispering to a child at night. Uh, uh, we've got wetness. I mean, that seems like to be a weird thing to say even once, if not twice in a podcast, but like, you know, there's this like puddle on the floor. And then also we find these clothes at the end that are, mm-hmm. that are wet. So that seems to be like a thing, uh, to be looking out for. What other like hints or clues are we amassing about, uh, what might be the actual threat, uh, looming around this story? Well, there was that, there, I love that line where Mendelssohn is talking to Bateman, like trying to figure out this thing with this van that was, you know, originated in New York, went, then ended up in Ohio and then somehow in Georgia. And he's like, 
and it's almost as if it followed you home. Yes. Ooh, you so know, creepy. which yeah. is such an ominous, cool, like visual even like, and, and, and I, so like, um, that suggests something sort of supernatural. I mean, obviously the fact that like, you know, this is not just kind of anecdotal evidence within the show, like stories that like, Oh, I, I know I saw Terry, you know, he was covered in blood or, you know, he was getting that kid's bike into the store. Like we see those things happen. So like in essence, they did happen as much as the, um, stuff at the, the, you know, academic conference happened. Um, so like, it, I, it doesn't really feel like it's a truth versus a lie or a delusion. It's a truth versus a truth. Uh, and, and sort of sort, sorting through that, I think, suggests something, obviously, supernatural or sci-fi or something. Right. There's that security footage of, you know, because, like, you know, a big thing that clears Terry is that he's caught on tape at this, like, you know, teacher's conference talking about banned books. Um and his fingerprints are on a book at that conference and stuff like that. But there's also this footage of him, uh, in an alleyway, uh, and uh, like they're zooming in on the footage and, uh, and, uh, Ralph's like, is he flipping us off? Like, is that what's happening? Like, what is happening here? So like, you know, what are we, what malevolent figure are we dealing with here? You know? So. Yeah. And all the things were that he did to make sure he was seen to make sure that the, the taxi cab driver called into right. her dispatcher, you know, right. like, and, and, you know, and, and Ralph lays this all out. He's like, who does this? Like, you know, and they're like, well, maybe he was feeling guilty and wanted to be caught. And they're like, nah, not by that, you know? Um, so like, it, it sounded like Terry when he talked to the, to Patty Constantine in the strip club, it sounded like Terry, uh, or looked like him, you know, in the other instances. Um, but, uh, you know, there was something maybe a little off. So I don't know. Yeah. I was rewatching that scene where he's talking to the little girl and he's got like the blood all over him. And the only thing that, that, you know, looks very different is not very different, but his hair is just like a lot more shaggy looking to me. I don't know. Cause there was a, there was a point when I'm, and maybe we still are, but there was a point early on before I had like sort of read the synopsis of the books. So I was like, is this a werewolf show? Is Jason Bateman playing a werewolf? Mm. Um, so I mean, it might still be that. I don't want to rule anything out, but, uh, I was, I was like looking closely. It looks like extra shaggy in that scene. So, um, I don't know what's going on, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's interesting because you're watching, we're watching, we know this is a Stephen King story, right? So we, we feel like mm-hmm. there must be something supernatural going on. So like, is it frustrating at all to watch, um, this detective do like shoe leather detective work? when we know that there is likely to be some sort of supernatural answer to all of this. Um, I say no, maybe if, if they had cast it differently, it would be a little more frustrating for me to watch. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I don't know. Is there anything else we want to talk about in these first two episodes? We meet these characters. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I'm I'm actually a little bit surprised that you didn't bring this up earlier. I mean, I think that something that's really, really crucial so far about this series is that not only do we have Ben Mendelsohn and Julian Nicholson, but we also have Mayor Winningham saying Big Daddy's Hangry Barbecue. <laughs> I mean, that's what show has done that. I mean, well, okay, Mayor Winningham says Big Daddy's Hangry Q. Right. And then Ben Mendelsohn and Julian Nicholson say barbecue. Right. And I just think that's important to know. I mean, maybe that's an Easter egg. I don't I know. I don't know. But... 
yeah, and we also get that great shot of the pig. Uh, I mean, I know you're joking, but also like the there's when when we're like when our angry friend is interrupted on his hunting trip, he's trying to shoot a pig who's like very messily eating something. And I was like, Ooh, that's one hungry big daddy over there. Uh, yeah. So, uh, are you saying that it is, um, that is hog season again on still watching? I think it might be. And, you know, I think Big Daddy is the villain. All um, right. But, you know, actually, but on a serious note, like, actually, that is an interesting, I hadn't thought about that, but that is interesting in that, like, you have this guy hunting these wild pigs, which if you've ever, um, you know, laughed at that feral hogs tweet about the guns or whatever, 30 to 50. Yeah. There, um, I think reply all the podcast did an episode where they interviewed the guy who tweeted that and then went into the whole wild hog problem or feral hog problem in the Southeast United States. And it's actually like a major problem. So anyway, that's a digression, but like, so he's killing a pig for sport. And then we have this barbecue restaurant where you're eating a pig for nourishment, pigs for the slaughter, that phrase. And it's like, like, so maybe who's ever doing this and took bites of this kid is it nourishment is it hunting is it sport like what we know what what's going on here and i think that like i like that sort of thematic um you know thing with the with yeah the, the last the, the i guess the last thing i'll say supernatural wise is like it feels like um you know and sometimes stephen king does this where it's just like an infection of evil right and so like this malevolent force mm-hmm. that has come to town has not only taken this child, which is a tragedy, ruined, uh, Terry's life, right? But then maybe seems to be inspiring some other stuff, like possibly, um, the brother, you know, you know, pulling the gun at the courthouse certainly seems to have inspired or at least is interested in this suicide attempt by the father, right? Like that's, that's an interesting thing, like that shot, right? Because we've got the suicide attempt mm. and then pan down the street and we've got this figure there. And so like this idea of it's not just, it's not enough to kill this child. This force is like a life ruiner as it spreads out. Cause it's like Terry is arrested in a way that like will forever haunt his family. And then the grief of this, um, you know, this boy's family uh, is is so cataclysmic that it is ruining their lives and and causing their death. Um, and and you know, did did he did this malevolent force somehow prompt our detective figure to behave rashly? Like, what what is the extent of this evil? What is the infection mm-hmm. that we're dealing with here uh, in this town? And and uh, you know, what is this guy who's discovered these wet clothes? Like, you know. What, what's going to happen next? Who knows? But like, but th- that's the thing is like, it's not just one murder. This, this force, uh, seems to be interested in causing, uh, mischief is too light of a word, but you know, um, yeah. tragedy elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Mayhem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and Yul Vasquez has that line when they're in the hospital. He's like the whole family just gone like that or something, you know, yeah. and it's like, Oh God, that's right. You know, um, but, and, you know, um, and yeah, I think that's, I think that's kind of feels like where the mood of the show is taking us that it's a, it's a, it's a more all encompassing sort of thing. It's not just about this, this, this kid, although that's obviously the center of it, but there, there might be more. Um, yeah. yeah. And the last thing I want to, uh, ask you is, is this, is this the, um, 
Is this the first time we've had someone give someone like a re- truly nuclear wedgie on a show that we've covered? <laughs> um, Atomic wedgie, I guess is the phrase. Uh, I don't know. Did it happen in Westworld season two, uh, as well? I mean, you would think that a robot would be really good at giving a wedgie if they wanted to. At, at some point, it must yeah, have. Yeah. That, yes. That is that the, the technical definition of, of that kind of wedgie is atomic. Um, <laughs> it, it just seemed like really, really. It went like it. midway up the back. It was pretty, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. To answer your question, I do believe this is a first we're still watching. I'm so glad that all of you are here wow. for this momentous occasion. Uh, as mm-hmm. we roll into 2020, uh, Richard, I'm so glad to have you back. I don't think I've said the word wedgies since I was 15 years old. I, ca- I so, can't remember. Thank you, the outsider. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> fingers crossed for some swirlies to come or something like that. Um, <laughs> all right, Richard, until, until we talk about, uh, evil in this town, uh, next week, uh, where can people find you? Um, I'm going to be at a book conf or a teacher conference talking about, uh, Fahrenheit 451 and the Iliad. So I'm, Cause I'm real smart. Um, where will you be until next week? Um, well, I will be handling, but not purchasing a rare book at said conference, uh, right down the hallway. Uh, <laughs> We're so. getting our alibis all <laughs> short up. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you can find me there. You can find both of us on com. You can always hear us talk about award season stuff over on Little Gold Men where it's like, we're in the thick of it now. We're in award season. So tis the season mm-hmm. to listen to us over there. Uh, you can, as I said, email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on atomic wedgies, um, barbecue and otherwise. And uh, until next time, uh, oh God, I'm, I was about to say like watch your underwear, but I just have decided not that that's not something <laughs> I'm going to say. Um, and, yeah. Until next time, uh, you know, may all of your hunting trips come to fruition and may you never be called back to work. Come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.